Well, good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and in um, particular, welcome to Richard Noddy from Goldman's. Um, Goldman Sachs, of course, as you know, is just along the road, and I like to think of it as a kind of retirement home for LSE graduates. Um, that's where many of them seem to fetch up. Um, Richard is going to talk to us about globalizing capital markets, new actors, new flows, new partnerships, and there's a lot going on in that area, of course. Capital markets have been rather difficult for the last two or three months, um, but Goldman's have survived that remarkably well. Uh, Richard is uh, co-chief executive of Goldman's in Europe. And given, of course, all the movements, and you heard what happened to Merrill Lynch this week, I did check uh, the website at 6 o'clock, and as of 6 o'clock, he was still uh, co-chief executive of Goldman's uh, Europe, um, which I hope comes as a relief to you, um, but you never know these days. So um, always important to check. Uh, we uh, do value our relationship with Goldman's. As I say, they are big recruiters here at the LSE, as many of you know. Uh, but also, we have a very good partnership with Goldman Sachs, or the Goldman Sachs Foundation in particular, on our widening participation work. We run a scheme um, which pulls in people from underperforming schools, difficult schools in difficult areas around uh, London, uh, where they identify promising individuals who, with some Saturday schooling, mentoring, etc., uh, might be in a position to apply to a place like the LSE. Uh, and that program, which is quite an, uh, an expensive intervention in relation to each uh, individual, about 100 school students, is, is funded, uh, half of it's funded by the Goldman's Foundation. We're very grateful to uh, Goldman's for that. So the partnership we have with them is quite an extensive one, and we are pleased to extend that even further this evening um, with a lecture from Richard. Thank you. Well, Howard, thank you very much for that um, kind introduction. I must say, you put a new definition on this concept of retirement, because when I, when I look at the productivity of all those LSE retirees in our organization, you know, that's really the only reason why I'm still in my position. <laughs> it's really all of you who keep us there. So um, thank you, and I'm really delighted to to be with you this evening, and as I, as I look around the hall, you know, the LSE, not surprisingly, is already ahead of the trend, <clears throat> and I'm going to talk about globalization, new capital flows, new actors, and new, and new partnerships, and really that all goes to this concept of diversity, and if I look at the, the makeup of, of our team here in London, the 7,000 people we have working in Fleet Street just around the corner, you know, the diversity of that organization is just a totally different order of magnitude from the organization that I joined 21 years ago. And that diversity is obviously critical as we try and stay ahead in this race to, to participate and to, to service these new flows, these new actors, and, and these new partnerships. And so that's really what I'm going to talk to you about tonight. Howard, as you also mentioned in your introduction, the markets have certainly become somewhat more dynamic and, and more interesting than they were when we first discussed this lecture um, back, back in, in the spring. And, and we've certainly learned a lot more about certain asset classes and the risks associated with that, those asset classes, uh, many of which were actually unknown broadly 
um, just six months ago. Um, and they're just a reminder of, of the risks that go alongside this new and exciting world that we, that we live in. But what I'd really like to do this evening is set out in broad terms some of the macro foundations of the current environment before discussing in greater detail these new flows, new actors and new partnerships. And then I'll close with some observations on the risks and challenges presented by this new ecosystem of global capital. And then obviously I look forward to, to taking your questions. Now no student of economics, certainly not a student here at the LSE, can be in any doubt that we are in the midst of a remarkable period in economic history. And for the past five years or so, since really the end of the tech bubble, we've been in an extraordinary period of global growth and wealth creation, driven by the opening of new markets alongside growth in global trade, financial innovation, favorable credit conditions, disciplined corporate management and firm fiscal and monetary policies. But what is perhaps most important is the breadth of this growth across geographies, across asset classes, and industries. And we're certainly on a path to a new economic world which is not as dependent on the leadership of the U.S. economy as it once was. The evidence is accumulating that a slowdown in U.S. growth will not necessarily undermine growth prospects in the rest of the world. If first the U.S. has gradually become relatively less important as a destination for the rest of the world's exports. Second, the underlying dislocation driving the U.S. slowdown is not global in nature, but rather focused on the domestic housing stock. And third, domestic demand is likely to remain on a solid footing in Europe, Japan, and key emerging markets such as China. And in fact, the contribution from the BRICS domestic consumer to global demand so far in 2007 is almost double that of the U.S., a truly remarkable fact and, and not something that any of us would have dreamed of as recently as uh, the turn of the century. Now, having spent a good part of my career in Asia, I'm conscious of the bias of assuming that challenges in the U.S. or Europe become challenges everywhere. But the reality of this rebalancing global economy, demonstrated most recently this past summer, is that the world does not necessarily catch a cold just because the developed markets sneeze. We may have one global economy, but it is powered by multiple engines with multiple sources of strength. And it is really these new engines that are providing the demand and liquidity behind the new flows, new actors and new partnerships in the global economy. And let me begin with the new flows of capital. And when I speak of these new flows, let me be clear, in some cases, the flows are not new in the sense that they haven't existed before, but rather because of their sheer scale and volume. And so even as the U.S. still absorbs something in the order of 85% of global capital flows, and 80% of these flows remain centered around the U.S., the U.K., and the Eurozone, money is increasingly flowing from, to, and between these emerging economies. In other words, the trend to look for is the growth in these flows over time. And here, the emerging markets truly tell a fascinating story. Since 1990, cross-border capital flows have grown more than 10% annually. 
outpacing growth in world GDP of 3.5% and trade at 5.8%. And over that period, capital inflows to emerging markets have grown twice as fast as inflows to developed countries. Investment flowing to developing countries now accounts for nearly half of world total foreign direct investment, compared with only 20% in 1990. And this is not just a China story. If you exclude China from these numbers, the share has still doubled from 16 to 32%. The composition of these capital flows to developing countries is also changing, from debt to equity and from public to private sources. Equity flows accounted for almost three-quarters of capital flows in 2006, up from two-thirds two years previously. Total private and official flows to developing countries have been averaging gains of more than 40% over the past three years. But perhaps what has been even more striking has been the willingness and, importantly, the ability of emerging giants from the new centers of global capital in China and the Middle East to take significant equity stakes in large established institutions in the U.S. and Europe. Witness China State Investment Company taking a $3 billion pre-IPO stake in Blackstone earlier this year, or the Qatari Fund with its current $21 billion takeover proposal for Sainsbury's, or the GIC and Tomasek alongside the China Development Bank proposing up to an $18.5 billion investment in Barclays as part of its battle to take over ABN AMRA. And only last week, ICBC out of China, China's largest bank, announcing a $5.5 billion investment into South Africa to take a 20% stake in Standard Bank. And so even as flows from emerging markets into developed markets are growing, so too are the flows between these emerging markets. And obviously the best example of that is the ICBC transaction announced just last week. Further evidence of this trend can be found in oil investors' allocation of a large share of their portfolios to emerging markets. Since 2002, 22% of foreign investments from the Persian Gulf have gone to Asia, North Africa, and other Middle Eastern countries. And it is estimated that cross-border capital flows between GCC countries in Asia will climb from $15 billion today to as much as $290 billion by 2020 an increase of almost 20-fold. Yet another example of the new direction of capital flows is the Chinese and Russian investment drive in Africa that we see today. Now, this has a great deal to do with the strong commitment of a number of African countries to managing their economies more effectively. And I know that all of you at the LSE are very much involved in this process, not least with your work in Rwanda, as you try and help a number of these African countries engage themselves directly into the global economy. And the ICBC investment, which I've already mentioned, into South Africa is only the most recent example. That transaction was clearly a milestone for Africa, but also for China. It was the largest ever overseas investment by a Chinese company. It is also the largest foreign direct investment into South Africa, but also into Africa as a continent as a whole. China has further committed itself to providing $20 billion in infrastructure and trade financing to Africa 
during the next three years and has already become Africa's second largest aid donor and trading partner after the U.S. Trade with China is up fourfold to $40 billion since 2000. And Russia, while still trailing China, is also very much focused on these new opportunities. While its trade with Africa is only $3 billion a year, this is up threefold since 2000. And Russian companies have invested more than $5 billion in Africa since that point in time. And so these broad trends behind the new flows, increased investment between emerging markets, a shift from debt towards equity, multi-billion dollar minority stakes taken by Chinese and Middle Eastern companies in European and U.S. organizations, this new focus on Africa by Chinese and Russian investors in pursuit of natural resources and high returns. These trends are not without their risks. And yet for those parts of the world which the global economy for decades has left behind, they present a new chance to share in the benefits of globalization. And driving these new flows are the new actors that I've talked about, a combination of new investors and new financial centers, which together form a wave of global capital without precedent in either volume or diversity of focus. And the global investor base has been broadened and diversified to a remarkable degree in terms of geographies, asset classes, and investment strategies. Private equity is one part of the story. And while these funds are estimated to control approximately $700 billion in assets, they are dwarfed in size by hedge funds whose assets under management today exceed $2 trillion. And while private equity and hedge funds are getting more active in intermediating the new flows, a more significant role is increasingly being played by entities closer to home. Asian central banks had amassed more than $3 trillion in foreign reserve assets at the end of 2006, up from just a $1 trillion in 2000. In fact, today, China and Japan each control over a $1 trillion of assets, with the rest held by Hong Kong, India, Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea, and Taiwan. And just 10 years after the country's default, Russia's central bank now holds greater foreign exchange reserves than all the EMU central banks combined. And growth in these assets is clearly going to continue. But perhaps more central to this new landscape are the sovereign wealth funds. Today they are estimated to be managing in excess of $2.5 trillion, as much as all the private equity and hedge funds combined. And this is a number that some suggest will increase by a factor of four by 2012. And while there's a certain level of hype around these funds right now, it is clear that they are poised to become an increasingly significant player in the global capital markets. Given the many varying descriptions of these funds in the media, let me clarify what I am referring to in this discussion. I think of a sovereign wealth fund as a government investment vehicle which is funded by foreign exchange assets and which manages those assets separately from the official reserves managed by the monetary authorities. These funds, generally speaking, are less leveraged and have longer investment horizons than private equity or hedge funds, and they certainly cannot be described as hot money. Once again, let me stress that sovereign wealth funds are not new. 
but the scale of their impact certainly is, and this is only likely to grow. I first focused on them as far back as 1987, when the KIO first made its investment into BP. I again saw them in the form of Tomasic and GIC when I moved to Asia in the late 1990s. These two Singaporean entities have in many ways served as benchmarks for disciplined and highly successful investing of foreign exchange reserves. And while we mostly hear about funds from Asia and the Middle East, countries as diverse as Norway, Botswana, Brunei have also set up foreign funds to generate higher returns from their foreign exchange reserves. And even as they are providing a new source of liquidity, sovereign wealth funds have raised a number of concerns, some legitimate. One revolves around whether they will want to take control stakes in some of these large corporations as opposed to remaining passive minority investors. Another is transparency around their strategies, practices, and investments. Yet another is whether non-economic political considerations will affect investment decisions. In other words, will they act more as a sovereign or as a fund? To the extent that these funds decide to operate on the same principles of transparency, governance, and accountability set by the Norwegian fund, widely viewed as the benchmark in this space, that would be a good thing. And conversely, where cross-border investments can evolve into cross-border nationalization, with foreign governments directly intervening in another country's strategic industries, legitimate concerns will obviously be raised. However, a protectionist response that would seek to restrict investments by these new actors in the global economy or subject their activities to cumbersome vetting processes is clearly not the right response. Given the common interest on all sides in maintaining open investment regimes and free trade to sustain global growth, a dialogue involving both governments and the new actors could go a long way towards dispelling myths and creating real transparency. The new players need to be sensitive to the established norms of the existing order, but equally the developed world needs to have a proper understanding of the perspectives of these new actors. There is growing evidence of an emerging plurality of market models around the world. The Russians, the Chinese, and the Gulf states are each practicing modern capitalism in their own distinct way, none of which is identical to the way it is practiced in the West. And with each passing day that these models appear to deliver growth and stability, they are less likely to see the Western model as the only way forward. A natural consequence of these new flows and new actors has been the emergence of new financial centers to service the needs of investors and corporates alike. The globalization of capital is facilitating a regionalization of capital markets. And this is why the debate between London and New York as rival centers has somewhat missed the point. There is no question that London has been a huge beneficiary of the shift eastward towards rising markets in Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. But the broader secular trend, however, is that capital markets in the rest of the world are beginning to assert themselves alongside of New York and London. One big reason is the continuing process of privatization in emerging markets. As state enterprises are taken public in Russia, China, and India, more liquid capital is drawn to these countries, and more local expertise is created in managing it. 
In addition, cities like Mumbai and Shanghai, but also Moscow, Dubai and Sao Paulo, are all growing fast, both in volume and sophistication. Their proximity to the new sources of capital will continue to increase their role in the global markets. Finally, let me say a few words about the new partnerships that are emerging from this confluence of new flows and new actors, providing opportunity not only to advance financial and business interests, but social ones as well. In this deeply networked world, where traditional boundaries between states, organizations, and private businesses are being eroded, we are seeing new combinations of actors. We have discussed the link-ups and co-investments between state-owned entities and private businesses, between private equity firms and traditional banks, between banks in China and banks in South Africa. But just as important have been the ways in which public and private sector interests have joined forces to bring the very best of both worlds to bear on issues of public importance. This has found expression in areas as diverse as health, climate change, poverty, and education, where traditional donors and charities are applying best practices from the private sector. At the same time, elements of the private sector are finding that helping to address these challenges is becoming central to their identity and ability to attract the best talent. At one extreme, of course, lies the extraordinary scale and commitment of the Gates Foundation, the largest charitable foundation in the world with an endowment valued at more than $60 billion. The Gates Foundation alone is projected to disperse about $2.8 billion this year alone, an amount which will exceed that delivered by all but a handful of the largest donor countries. Applying the best practices from the worlds of business, technology, and academia, the Gates Foundation is leading a revolution in the world of charitable giving. In the same spirit of partnership and collaboration, we at Goldman Sachs worked with governments and the World Bank over a two-year period to use the power of the capital markets to accelerate funding for childhood immunization programs. The result was the International Finance Facility for Immunization, or IFM, which is financing immunization programs in 70 of the world's poorest countries. And through immunization programs operated by the Gavi Alliance, Alliance, it is projected that in total the money IFM raises will help protect more than 500 million children over the next decade, possibly saving as many as 10 million lives. More recently, we have joined forces with a traditional insurance company and a global multilateral agency to explore the establishment of a private equity fund to invest in healthcare infrastructure in sub-Saharan Africa, a hybrid initiative at the intersection of commercial opportunity and development that brings together agents from both sides of that divide. So ladies and gentlemen, the world is changing and it is clearly changing in a very dramatic way. Between the increase in investment flows to emerging markets, the rise of sovereign wealth funds, the ar arrival of the Chinese in Africa and the Americans in China, a new ecosystem of global capital is emerging. As you will have gathered from my remarks so far, I think this is a world of tremendous opportunity for greater numbers of people in more corners of the world than ever before. But just because the secular story is as powerful as it appears, it does not mean that cyclical risks have gone away. Financial shocks have not evaporated, nor has the economic cycle. 
And anyone who's been around the economic world long enough just to remember this past summer, but not just this past summer, you go back to the tech bubble collapse just post-2000, 1998, 1994, 1991. We know this all too well. The cycle will exist for a long time to come. And yet at the global macro level, there is reason enough for continued optimism. For me, this is rooted fundamentally in the emergence of multiple engines in our global marketplace and the growing ability of the BRIC countries to help sustain a permanently rebalanced global economy. Now, underlying every aspect of this growing multi-engined global economy are well-regulated markets and open investment regimes. If either of these is threatened by protectionism or poor supervision, we will be looking at an entirely different growth prospect for global, for global prosperity. And when it comes to the importance of regulation, as dynamic and innovative as the markets it is meant to oversee, we could do worse than recall the words of the formal head of the FSA from back in January, six months before the credit crisis hit. And I quote, We all know that the reality of the financial markets is that risk is being parceled up and passed around. But the international regulatory architecture is still organized as if the world had not changed. As a result, we have a regulatory architecture designed for a bygone age. End quote. And I suppose, Howard, even you were amazed at the speed and the depth of the <laughs> collapse in the credit markets, which we've been through this past summer. But you were clearly onto something. And your point about the unchanged regulatory architecture is just as accurate when thinking about broader economic organizations, such as the IMF, the World Bank, and the G7. These still reflect the world of 1945 more than the world of 2007. I wonder, for example, how long the G7 meetings can have the question of the Chinese currency at the top of the agenda without the Chinese being present. And the same, of course, is true for India, Brazil, and other large emerging economies. And if these broad multilateral institutions are to maintain their relevance, they need to have the players at the table. When it comes to the question of open investment regimes, let me suggest two principles that should guide any country's judgments on this vital issue, namely transparency and reciprocity. Difficult as they may be to achieve, they are in fact simple rules. As long as investments are made in a transparent and accountable manner according to market principles and countries remain as open to them as they expect others to be, Global growth based on open markets can be sustained. Rarely before has the world of finance been as diverse or as innovative. Rarely before has it played as large a role in the broader global society. New flows, new actors, and new partnerships are creating opportunities in more places for more people than ever before. And I hope my remarks have helped highlight some of these opportunities and the conditions necessary for seizing them. I'm now happy to take your questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Richard. And um, although the 
uh, LSE's clocks eccentrically say that it's just after 8 o'clock. Um, they, I think we do have um, time for uh, some questions, which you covered an enormous range from sovereign wealth funds through some of the charitable initiatives and then uh, a subject rather close to my heart, the way in which the international financial regulatory architecture has not properly adapted to changes in financial uh, balances around the, around the world. Um, so that gives you a huge um, field uh, of uh, questioning which is open to you. Um, while you think, I've got one question myself, which is, relates to the, you referred, uh, Richard, in, uh, quite directly to sovereign wealth funds and the potential protectionist response to them. In the U.S., of course, there is the Cepheus um, uh, arrangement, and there are now discussions or suggestions in Europe, particularly emerging from France and indeed from Germany, uh, for something similar. I mean, when you say you fear protectionism, are you against that kind of thing, or do you think that a mechanism of that sort would uh, be appropriate in Europe, given the likely nervousness that some companies and indeed individuals may, may feel? Well, look, I think we, we, we clearly need to work out how we're going to live together. Um, and I, I think, as I mentioned in my remarks, you know, these players are, are here for the long term, and they're here for good. We've obviously been through a period where we were very happy to accept their money. No one, no one questioned sovereign wealth funds when they were buying U.S. treasuries and financing that part of economic growth. People raised questions when they turned to equity. So I think their money is, is here and it's, and, and it's here for good and they're going to be a very, very important part of our marketplace. But we're going to have to set up a series of principles by which we live and by which they live. And I don't think we're all going to come to a point where we all buy in to an identical model. We're all going to live by our own individual models and we're going to have to develop principles which allow these models to coexist. <coughs> And I would rather we got to develop those principles through a process of consultation and discussion in some structured way. And whether that's driven by you know, the IMF, whether it's driven by some other organization, but in engagement with these players. I think the players should be at the table and we should together work out what these principles should be as opposed to us unilaterally legislating. Um, and I think if we go through that period of consultation, we'll get to a better place. Thanks. Uh, yeah, probably best to have microphones so that other people can hear. And if you could say um, who you are, but I know who you are, Willem Bouter. Willem <laughs> uh, Bouter, LSE. I have a question uh, that's brought up by your mentioning the International Finance Facility. Uh, and I think this may not have been the best example, I think, of a valuable social contribution necessarily of um, the private financial sector reaches the following. The international finance facility permits governments to securitize future aid flows. And it allows the government therefore to borrow against future aid flows. It does not increase the present discounted value of current and future aid. It simply shifts it forward in time. Now it may well be the case that aid today is more important than aid tomorrow. But that's a judgment call and not an obvious one everywhere. And secondly, I'm not arguing with the purposes that this aid today serves. Clearly, those vaccination calculations are immensely valuable. 
But uh, the fact that it was simply a way for the government to borrow more to fund Aid Today should have been emphasized. And secondly, uh, the, uh, the serious negative point is that it provided the government with a way of off-budget and off-balance sheet financing uh, and thus get around restrictions imposed on it by the Stability and Growth Pact and by other such arrangements. I spent a lot of my time advising governments in developing countries and emerging markets not to engage in what I would call financial window dressing. This is public sector financial window dressing for the best possible ultimate aims, but nevertheless, I think, a negative. And it would have been much better to simply say we need this aid, let's spend it, and let's raise taxes to fund it. Thank you. I think you're absolutely right. This is, this is a judgment call, and I think you know, each of these situations need to be looked at and evalu evaluated on the basis of their own individual merits. I think, to us anyway, and we obviously got to a different judgment decision from the one that you would get to, we looked at this given the use of the money, and this was about immunization. And if one could have gone out there and just asked for the money and got the billion dollars, yeah, that would have been terrific. But the fact is that aid was not forthcoming from governments. <clears throat> so we had to find a way where we could bring these future aid payments forward with the simple purpose of getting ahead of the problem as opposed to always playing catch-up. <clears throat> if we, just to put some numbers to this, could only be spending $50 million per annum immunizing children, you were never going to get ahead of the problem. If you could have a massive program up front funded by a billion dollar aid um, payment, you could really cover the waterfront, immunize a sufficient number of children, and as I indicated in my, in my remarks, we thought we could get to, through this mechanism, 500 million children, potentially save 10 million lives. If we just followed the normal aid patterns, you wouldn't have achieved that. So I think in this particular situation, by getting ahead of the problem, you could eliminate the problem. And, and so that is. You could eliminate the scale of the problem. Uh, the question over here, yeah. Um, just wondered. Hi, I'm Jasper. I'm, a, I'm an alumni here. Just wondered if you had some remarks about uh, the increasing correlation that we've seen in the markets, especially in. Uh, crisis periods, um, and this correlation often a result of the new actors, hedge funds especially, um, and whether or not uh, sovereign wealth funds are a counter to that, and if not, is there any counter in the markets? Well, you raise a number of issues. I think you know, one important point in terms of this correlation is that I do feel we live in a world today which, although connected, and we're more part of one global economy than, we, than we've ever been, it also benefits from having multiple engines. And so you've got the US, which has always been there. You've got Europe, which has always been there. <coughs> but we have China, we have Asia, we have Japan. And so as one part of the world slows down, your other parts may be accelerating. And so you, you benefit from multiple sources of, str of strength, which is, obviously, um, which is obviously very, very important. The sovereign wealth funds <coughs> are clearly a new provider of liquidity. And one of the issues that we've been facing through the summer <laughs> is a shortage of liquidity. And so in that sense, they've been able to be a positive force as opposed to a negative force. And in fact, this period of 
of tight liquidity has provided them with very significant opportunity and significant investment opportunity. You know, so it's no surprise that today, you know, a Qatari fund is looking to buy Sainsbury's as opposed to a you know, traditional private equity firm. Who do I see? Anybody up in the top? Yeah, second, second row over there, White's sweatshirt. Um, you talked about um, Goldman Sachs' um, charitable participation um, under this global trend of new actors, new flows. Um, but is there another um, strategy, strategy developed to capture more profit rather than for the sake of helping more children? Well, yeah, the, the, the FM example, and I, can, I could give you a number of examples. The FM, FM example was a two-year project. <coughs> it took a lot of people an enormous amount of time. And a bond was eventually underwritten and, and distributed. <coughs> the, the normal fees that we would have received as an institution from underwriting and distributing those securities, we donated those fees back into the program. So you know, as a firm, we didn't benefit at all. Um, so it really was a combination of our intellectual property, aid payments, working with government to try and address a social good. So this was not done for profit. And I think if you, if you walk the corridors of Goldman Sachs and our 30,000 people, you'd find a huge appetite amongst every one of those individuals to really give some of their time, some of their intellectual capital to further those sorts of projects. It's not an organization that is driven 24 by 7 by, by the profit motive. That's an important part of what we do, but people recognize and have a great desire to give, to give something back. And we have a number of programs. We have, we have something which has just gone through its 10th anniversary, which, which we call Community Teamworks, whereby the firm really gives every employee one day off to go and participate in their communities. And we do this in groups, not, so it's not one by one. We organize groups, and they go and participate and make a contribution. And obviously, the one day is important. But the real motivation here is to stimulate an, an interest and really be a catalyst to further giving. And I think what you find with the majority of our people is that they go for the day, and then they engage beyond that day and really become you know, significant players and contributors to the broader social community. Thank you. Yeah, a uh, woman over there near the uh, sort of fourth row from the back. Over there. I was wondering if you could speak for a moment about uh, human capital and how financial institutions such as Goldman Sachs will address the issue of recruitment in the new financial centers. If there's a preference to hiring locally, um, as opposed to sending expats with experience in developed markets, and I suppose it's a mixture of the both, but how, how you'll deal with that issue. Yeah, it's very interesting. I was looking at some figures for our, our population here in London. We have, um, we have 7,000 people in our London operations, and it's really from London that we service the rest of Europe. And the numbers split down almost exactly 50% UK nationals, 50% non-UK nationals. And of the non-UK nationals, only about 10% are of US origin. So you can see it's a very diverse um, population and a broad European and Asian population that work here alongside 
you obviously the significant the significant UK base. And as a and our seven thousand people here are really just a microcosm of the entire organisation. And you go to Asia, you'd see the same sort of numbers, and obviously the US would be you know, more heavily skewed towards the, towards the US population. But we build our, our workforce to service the markets in which we operate. We're very much focused on building local skills and local people. We've been in these markets long enough now that our local people have got to, to very senior levels. When I started in this organization you know, 20, 21 years ago, and if I was looking upwards <coughs> just in our London population, it would have been a, a fully U.S. crew, and I've got nothing against a fully U.S. crew, but obviously it wasn't local in this community. You know, people in, in that position now looking up would see a diverse European um, global leadership group, and, and that's what this organization is today. Uh, there were a couple, I thought there was someone in the back there. What's a woman on the front row here? So we've really got one microphone. So. There's another one up there. Okay. Hi, uh, my name is Trudy. I'm a master's student, uh, student here. I'd just like to, um, you to, to qualify a statement you made about it's essential that emerging markets have free and open trade and, and capital markets, and yet we, we know that the wealth of economies like the US and, the, and Britain were not built on uh, free and open trade and capital markets. Uh, obviously, it's very beneficial for investment banks uh, like Goldman Sachs to, to go to go in and, and and participate in investment in those countries. But how is it beneficial for emerging market economies to have complete free liberal trade policies? Is it important for them to start off with protectionist policies and to build up their internal strength before they become completely freed up? Well, let me let me just focus on the. You know, on the movement of capital flows, and we can we can maybe talk a little bit about trade if you if you wish. But I you know, I spent eight years of my career out in Asia, and I spent much of that time working in China. And an important part of our work was really bringing capital into China for the benefit of China and for the benefit of China's institutions. And I remember an early discussion with with, with Zhu Rongji, who was who was Premier of China at the time, and, and he really was dr the, the, the key driver behind this privatization process. He was privatizing enormous institutions. So when you looked at you know, the energy industry or the, the banking industry or the telecommunications industry, you know, these were organizations that employed hundreds of thousands of people. In fact, some of the oil companies were in the range of a million, million five. Huge disparate organizations <coughs> across the entire China um, landscape. And he had a number of challenges. Governance was one challenge. How did he govern an institution that large? PetroChina, we took PetroChina public, employed 1.5 million people. How do you govern an organization like that? This is now the second largest company by market cap in the world, <coughs> if you look at the, um, the league table rankings as of today. And he'd figured out that if you took that company to the international marketplace, the marketplace would help govern that, co that company. You'd get better efficiencies, you'd get better practices, it would become more commercial. If you did that with that entity, you did it in the banking sector, you did it in the telecommunications sector, you would start to reform and modernize your industrial base. And you do that to the benefit 
of the broader economic landscape in your own country and obviously for the um, create better, better prospects for your people. And so that was one way where you could see international capital coming into China and really making China a better place. And I think if you look at the growth of China over the last 10 years, you know, some important percentage of that growth is attributable to the inflow of foreign capital. And so I think having open markets is absolutely critical. And there are a number of examples you can look to which have been absolutely sealed shut over that same period of time. And they have not enjoyed economic growth. In fact, they've gone, they've gone the other way. Yeah, I think your point has also got something to do with, with speed of change. And, and clearly, you're in a better position if you can manage the speed of change. And so there's a process of evolution as opposed to revolution. And, and you can debate you know, how fast that change should occur, but we certainly believe that change should occur. We believe that organizations, companies, countries benefit by being integrated into the global economy. To me, it's one of the most exciting things about what's happening in Africa right now when you've got a Chinese bank, ICBC, investing in, in Standard Bank in South Africa, when you've got Chinese organizations going into Angola and the, and the DRC. Yeah, I wish more European and U.S. organizations would do the same and, and bring Africa and integrate Africa into the global economy. I think it will help lift the continent and create better opportunities for its people. Uh, <coughs> right at the back there, yeah. John Parker from Watson White. Uh, Richard, I'd be interested in your views on the UK government's increased scrutiny on, uh, on non-DOMs and uh, whether that would have an effect on, on Goldman's uh, and also the proposed changes to the capital gains tax uh, rates. Somewhat, somewhat remote from your... Uh, I'm just thinking these must be, the, be non-DOMs that are walking <laughs> out right now. They don't want <laughs> Yeah, I think the, um, the non-DOM population in the UK, and in particular you know, operating in the financial centre, has made an enormous contribution um, to the growth of London as uh, certainly Europe's um, financial capital. And so it's, it's a very, very important part of the population. And obviously it's a, part of the, it's a population that's received some political focus and anyone who's been reading the papers over the last couple of years at sea have seen increased, increased focus on, on tax in a number of areas, the whole private equity space, the non-DOM space, you know, and the list goes on. And obviously the government you know, is trading very, very carefully here. They don't want to do anything that, that chases away you know, people who are truly rotating through here on a temporary basis. They've got the seven-year um, time horizon, so... If, for the first seven years, that £30,000 number does not um, come into play. They've tried to pitch that number at a level which doesn't chase people away, and I guess they figured out that if you've been you know, in the game more than seven years, £30,000 is maybe a number that you can, you can deal with. So I think they, you know, they, they're trading very, very carefully. This is, a, this is a very important population. We employ a lot of them. We want them to stay here. We're confident that they will stay here, um, but their political pressures, and I guess that's what they're responding to. Thanks. Um, there was somebody else there. Yes, a girl in the second row. Thanks. Uh, a question on hiring. Would you prefer EU people to um, Asians for the London office since they are local to EMEA? 
And how do you think the Asian perspective can contribute to the London office? Thank you. Look, I'm a great lover of Asia. So I'll employ Asians in London, I'll employ them in Asia, and I'll employ them in, uh, in, in, in New York. So, you know, look, we're looking for very talented people. That's what we're looking for. You know, over time, that naturally leads to a diverse population, and that's, and, and that's what we have. But we are very, very comfortable hiring Asians here. We're obviously very comfortable hiring Asians anywhere, but the same is true for, for any, any nationality. Our focus is very simple. It's about talent. <clears throat> it's about creating an environment whereby that talent, from where, wherever it comes, can flourish. So it's an open, encouraging, positive environment. <clears throat> and ultimately, we are meritocracy. And that's really the key to our success. And as long as we keep driving forward with those meritocratic principles, we'll continue to be a very successful organization. Uh, have the blue shirt from Specs up in there. Thanks. Upstairs. My name is Chico from Linklaters. Um, question about M&A flows. Um, you know, for a long time, people have been talking about the potential for um, outflows from Asia, taking over um, Western companies, etc. And uh, whilst we've seen robust flows in this regard, I, I think there's a general feeling that it hasn't yet taken off as much as it could do. Um, related to that, um, you've got um, sovereign wealth funds who investing in stakes rather than um, uh, wholesale acquisitions, etc. Just want to get your feeling of the potential for that market, and if so, is there the necessary resource and capability to manage? Um, companies of, of such size and whilst I've got the mic just another question related to private equity in Asia and uh, the potential for that which as well seems not to have taken off Thanks yeah, yeah, in, in some sense I think you answered your question I, your own question I, if we focus on Asia and we focus on China I mean, these are very very smart investors and, and so they're looking for significant invest, investment return and they're going to invest in places and in ways that they think can you know, best secure that return. And your point about resources and capability and skills to manage control positions in companies in Western Europe or the United States, you know, I think China recognizes right now that it's short of those skills. In fact, one of the biggest challenges within China itself is senior management capability. And that, if that's tough enough at home, you can only imagine how tough it is when you're actually investing abroad. So I think China right now, and Asia more broadly, is very, very comfortable taking minority positions in successful companies, allowing existing management to continue to drive those companies forward. You obviously see very sig significant Asian investment flows into the, into the, through the equity markets and taking very small positions in companies which are not even disclosed in the same way that a Fidelity or a Capital or a Goldman Sachs Asset Management would invest in companies, these sovereign wealth funds are investing in those companies. And so I think until you've got that skill set to really manage control positions, you, you won't see dramatic flow on, on that front. Uh, you know, people have seen the Japanese experience, if you go back 20 years, and it wasn't altogether successful, and I think people are very, very you know, focused on, on not going down the same path. Private equity is growing in Asia, and if you, if certainly we at Goldman Sachs have had you know, a very successful um, and profitable experience investing privately 
in the Asian markets. They're fast-growing economies, and they're very significant opportunities. I think all the major private equity players in the world are opening offices and looking for people out there, and so I think you'll continue to see that, that part of the market growing, growing fast. I'll take a couple more, and then I'm going to have a final question. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll take uh, this guy here, and then I'll come over to you. Thanks. Um, thank you, sir, for your speech. Um, you talked in your speech about the new ecosystem that um, we're currently experiencing in the world. I mean, one of the things that struck me recently was um, you talked about the ICBC buying a stake in South Africa's Char um, Standard Chartered Bank. Um, that is an actually emerging market country buying into another emerging market country, which is something pretty like special in the sense that before it used to be driven by US and Europe and so on and so forth. So my question is, like, with regards to this new ecosystem that we see around us, what do you foresee to be the biggest risk in terms of, I mean, do you see any kind of irresponsibility maybe um, in terms of investment, investing wrongly into different countries and probably not you know, taking responsibility of the decisions. I mean, do you see that as a kind of risk in, in the new environment? Thank I think you. it was by the, a standard bank, not standard chart. Standard bank, bank yeah. yeah. But Look, uh, yeah, I investment decisions are about risk and return. And, and so all of these investments carry with them their own risks. And I'm sure you know, if we roll the clock forward and, and, and then look back, a number of these investments will have been very, very successful. I'm sure that, that, that some will not have been successful. And that's, but that's always been the case, and it's all part of these new capital flows. And certainly, when you're trying something for the first time, it's got a greater level of risk attached to it than if it's a, a well-trodden path. But I just think it's, I mean, the real point is that you know, when you think you sit here in 2007 and Beijing is getting connected to Johannesburg and Moscow is getting you know, connected to um, Sao Paulo, and you know, it's not just New York, London, Hong Kong, Tokyo. You know, all these different centers are playing a part and capital is flowing down all these different paths. You know, so it really is a web of capital flows and it's, you know, it's a more complex but a more exciting environment. And it's really channeling capital to people, to people who need it. And I think it's, it's really an opportunity to bring everybody onto the good side of globalization and really helping everybody benefit from globalization and not just benefiting the few, um, as maybe has been more the case in the past. Take one last one over there, and then I've got a final question. Thanks. Um, over the past month, these big banks have been reporting their uh, earnings for the quarter. Uh, Goldman Sachs seems to be the only one uh, of the big four and the only one the whole of investment banks who actually posted was was 80% return quarter on quarter. And uh, regardless of the 1.5 billion write-down, was that Goldman Sachs actually made quite a lot of money shorting securities related to mortgages. What is it that makes Goldman Sachs, you know, that seems the bank seems to manage to make like significant amounts of money in all market conditions? Like, um, what is it like? You could describe in three words. What is that that makes the bank so efficient in any conditions? You oh. can you can definitely come and work for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, that, yeah, that, that, we, we we keep saying to ourselves that was last quarter, and it was obviously a very very successful quarter for us. Yeah, we are now in this quarter, and we'll soon be focusing on next quarter. And we really do take this, you know, a day at a time and a quarter at a time, and and we work it through. We've got terrific people, and believe me, it's not the people at the top; it's the people, you know, who were who were sitting in a lecture theatre like this. You know, one year ago, three years ago, five years ago, that are already driving so much of our success. 
and it's really the quality of our people, their ability to work together as a team, to communicate effectively, to share information, and to react to events. And we've obviously been through a good period of time. But, you know, we all, we, I, I'm sure when we look forward over the next five years, there are going to be periods when we wish we'd done something slightly different from what we had. And, you know, we don't get everything right. We hope to get a lot more right than we get wrong. But it's not, you know, we don't have the, uh, the sort of magic potion. But we, we, we work damn hard to try and make sure we get as close to it as we can. But it's, uh, you know, we take it a quarter, a quarter at a time. And, and with this increased volatility in the markets, if you do things right, there's obviously very, very significant opportunity, and that's what we, that's what we try and take, take advantage of. But you've got to be alert and you've got to react, you've got to react quickly. And you're only going to do that if you've got the very, very best people you know, working together and communicating together. Can I just uh, can I just, uh, close with, with one uh, question, which sort of builds on uh, on that one, really? Um, we, we, we had re Alan Greenspan here about uh, three weeks ago, and talking about the sources of the market turbulence, which you referred to, and which governments have managed their way through outstandingly well, clearly. Uh, but he was pressed by me on you know, the underlying problem here, and the thing that he spoke quite extensively and rather warmly about was the way in which the procedures of securitization um, and particularly this sort of slicing and dicing of risk and repackaging and sending it back, uh, selling it on and it, turning it into uh, securities with different ratings um, that this had created a kind of chain where nobody in the chain seemed to feel any particular interest in the quality of the original Learn that that was the mortgage broker has taken his cut and he's out of it. The originator has packaged it up and he's out of it. The investment bank has securitized its license and that and he's out of, uh, he's out of it. Um, now, people are now saying, well, yeah, this is quite a good analysis and maybe you know, proposals in the FT today that perhaps people should be required, the originator should be required to keep half of the loan or whatever or some proportion of it. Um, do, do you, one, do you accept this sort of diagnosis of the problem, and two, do you think there's any solution to it? Yeah, look, I think the, um, I mean, and he's obviously focusing very specifically on the, you know, on the mortgage space and the, the subprime space. I, you know, to us, I mean, what happened in the market through the summer was really the result of a long period of dramatic buildup of leverage across all asset classes. This wasn't just a subprime issue. You know, we've had a huge build-up in leverage over many, many years you know, right across the waterfront. And so subprime happened to be the catalyst that set it all off. But it wasn't subprime that, that really led to the breakdown in confidence in the interbank market um, and, and, the issues, and the issues that followed. It was really just excessive leverage in the system, and so that's, you know, that to us is the, is the bigger picture. You know, if we were sitting here six months ago, we'd, been, we'd have been talking about a very positive economic outlook. We'd have said that one of the reasons that you know, the global economy and some of these emerging economies have been growing so, so fast and in such a good way was because of cheap money and easy credit. And we'd have identified some of these issues. Now, the further you go back from these sorts of innovations, the more you're going to impact future global growth. And so, yeah, I think you can come back from what we were doing in the summer, but you've got to be careful how much you come back because 
you're going to have a significant impact on growth and the provision of credit and the provision of liquidity into the market. So, you know, I think you go back to, you know, reflections post the tech bubble. So Sarbanes-Oxley comes in, people think, well, maybe we legislated too much and, you know, have we had too great an impact? You know, I think this is, you know, this is much more a time for analysis, reflection, and let's just see how things settle. And then, uh, yeah, I think with the benefit of time, I think we'll get better perspective as to uh, as to what's appropriate. I'm sure we can go into each of these markets, and certainly you can look at this market, the Northern Rock situation, which is a little bit closer to home, but it's in some ways not totally different from what happened in some of the subprime um, discussion that you've you know, you've just focused on. There, there were certain specific practices that we should probably go after. But I don't think changing the system and, and forcing people to hold p things on the balance sheet that they could otherwise sell, I, I'm not sure that's appropriate. I think there's a price for everything. And why should someone hold something on a balance sheet if they can actually sell it? Uh, I think you've got to be very careful how far we go down the legislative path. Um, we ought to wind up, which means I don't have time to ask you the question I really wanted to ask, which was whether, as a South African, you feel any sense of shame at winning the World Cup through just a disallowed try that was clearly a perfectly good try. How much time do we have here? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, perhaps we... I were. actually wish that that had been a try. Because we would have seen a better game as a result. Exactly. Uh, that's, what, uh, that's what I think. I think, actually, we would have lost by far more, uh, in fact, because the you know, South Africans might have actually had to play some rugby, which would have left us in trouble. Um, however, um, that's perhaps uh, something we can discuss a bit further over a drink. So thank you very much, Richard, for a very interesting presentation. Thank you very much.